Cubicle Night Noodlings recorded on the 11th of June, 2020. This is my corner of the internet, where I talk about the fun things that tickle my nerdy nerve endings. So I decided to pick up and dust off the noodlings for my 14th installment because there were exactly two people that asked me when I would do another podcast. So thank you, Patrick and Vince. I'll also keep the editing down to a minimum as to reduce the actual time it takes me to finish this thing. So, some more breaths and strange pauses to annoy you. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine about his podcast. You know, he's a professional broadcaster, as in, he is on a syndicated radio show and more than one terrestrial radio station, and having two podcasts now. And I asked him how long it took to record and edit his podcast. He looked at me and said, edit? I looked back at him and I said, yeah, edit. Like, how long does it take you to edit your podcast? which he retorted, no man, I don't edit the podcast, I just trim down the ends and publish. So I asked, well, how long does that take? He said, well, it's about a 20-minute podcast, so 20 minutes. So I feel pretty stupid. On this episode, I'll be talking about LeoCAD from Design to Publication, the DeWalt Cordless Power Tool Platform, APC UPS Battery Backup Rebuild, a bit of follow-up, my open Sousa corner, and a computer history retrospective. LeoCAD is a CAD application focused on creating sets or designs in Legos. I'm quite the fan of Legos, and I like to use LeoCAD to document my designs and so forth. So what I wanted to do was to take a design that I had worked on for a while, and with my kids actually, and submit it to Rebrickable as just another mock or my own creation. This is based off of a vintage Lego space theme called Blacktron. I based the design of this set off an existing modular set called The Invader. It's, you know, one I got as a kid in 1987, so it's, you know, a couple of years old now. And I've purchased a few others, you know, on eBay or, or BrickLink you know, to have to, to build up my uh, vintage Blacktron Lego collection because I'm, you know, kind of obsessed with it. I put together this design and submitted it and you know, going through the process and rebrickable to submit it. And they have this, I didn't see it before, you know, maybe it was there before, but I didn't see it called Build Instruction Viewer. I thought it was really cool. You could click on, you know, it would... It would walk you through the steps of creating whatever you designed off your CAD model. And I noticed as I clicked through that it was all kinds of nonsense. It was a mess. It didn't make sense. You can't have Lego suspended in the air and build underneath it. It just it was no good. So I went through and I optimized, optimized is the right word. I went through and I, I organized using the timeline, the, the set for each of the sub models within the model. It took me a little while to do. I also had to swap out or some other alternate parts because some of the numbers have changed over years or they're replaced with new numbers. And to make all that work in the inventory on Rebrickable, I had to fix all that. So I spent some time on that, also showing my kids how to do that. And, you know, the, their intention span was good for about 30 or 45 seconds of me adjusting the timeline. And, and going the timeline, I found it was easier if I started at the end of the timeline, if it was like just, you know, one step, start at the end of the timeline and then pick things off and move it to new steps. It was easy to go from a completed set to just the starting plate or whatever uh, in that direction as opposed to 
starting from the beginning and then trying to sort it to what comes next. I, I find it a lot easier to do it that way. So I went through, got rid of some hidden bits that were inside of the set too, which I thought was really odd. Submitted that, cleaned up the inventory on the site because they're the way LeoCAD uh, submits the information, uh, the uh, the minifigures, their hands and arms are separate pieces. The uh, Rebrickable site does flag those, so I adjusted it accordingly. After completing the uh, inventory optimization, I'll call it, they have a really neat little tool for swapping out parts and, and replacing things and so forth. I discovered it wasn't so cheap to uh, to build this thing, this set. It said the estimated cost was $137.91 U.S. So that seems a bit inflated to me because I certainly didn't spend that much money on it. Don't know where it comes up with that number, but, you know, there you go. I did create a short little video to demonstrate how the build instruction viewer looks. And uh, so you should check it out. It's really pretty cool. And it gives perspective builders an easier time of building that set. Last year, by means of necessity, I, I changed my cordless tool platform from the 18-volt Porter cable to the 20-volt Max DeWalt. In other countries, it's called, I think, just 18-volt DeWalt or new 18-volt, I don't know. The actual process of choosing a platform took me several months, maybe even closer to a year or so. I watched a lot of review videos on YouTube, looked at what was available around me in my area, looked at the corporate decisions of how the different cordless platforms have been historically managed and so forth. Now, this is not a commercial thing here. I'm not I'm not advertising for DeWalt. I mean, I, I take advertising dollars, but I'm not advertising for DeWalt. This is just more of a justification for my decision, and, you know, my justification won't match other people, you know, for their region or their use case. So, this is just me. The goal of this was to reduce as much complexity in my life in terms of home maintenance and project completion. I had too many battery platforms and a lot of failing batteries. So when making this decision, it was going between DeWalt 20-volt, Nikita 18-volt, Milwaukee M18, I think it's called, Bosch, and Ryobi. You know, all basically 18-volt systems. On price alone, along with options, Bosch and Milwaukee were kind of out. Good tools, good reviews, but the price point did not match with my usage requirements. Makita had some strange tech in their batteries that would brick them and render them useless if you started poking around inside of it. And that wouldn't work for me because, well, I have to poke around. I, I gotta take my things apart. I wanna see how they're made. That left DeWalt and Ryobi. Since I am a fan of Made in the USA, and they are commercially available adapters to use DeWalt batteries on Ryobi tools, I decided that I was gonna go with DeWalt as I saw it as the best course of action for me. Their selection of tools also had a lot more commercial or heavy duty if I chose to scale up that way. I could also get you know, some of the lower end stuff for things I didn't really care about. So it kind of spanned what I needed to more than what I needed. So as a bonus, just about everything I want or need is made by DeWalt to include outdoor yard maintenance equipment. This means I could indeed simplify everything I have down to one battery platform and therefore with proper organization, I would always have a battery ready to go and ready to charge. Now, the one thing I don't really understand is why I love the drill as much as I do. It, but it, it's always such a pleasure to use and to take things apart with it that I, I find excuses just to use it. It's just a, a compact brushless drill that has a little bit more heavy-duty, like metal leaf. I like it very much. I, I did build a set of stairs recently 
which made my new favorite tool this cordless framing nailer. I didn't have a framing nailer. I wanted one, but I ended up getting the DeWalt 20-volt cordless framing nailer. More on that another time, but a lot of fun. Really reduced the amount of time it took me to build the project, and that was pretty great. How often I'll use it? Not sure. I got a project this weekend for it. Maybe once a week, every other week on the average. I don't know. Probably depends on weather. It's definitely the most dangerous tool I own, and therefore probably one of the most fun tools I own. I also got this compact router. I had a uh, cutout tool that I used as a router previously on the 18-volt Porter cable line. This is an actual proper router where you can do proper routing things and has a, a plunger base option of which I don't have. And I've used that quite a few times already for building a bench that I used out of scrap wood for around the fire pit in the backyard and, and some other things. So it's it's a great little router. It It's fast. It's quiet. Only dials up to seven. Not sure, but hey, it's really nice and I like it. So I'm quite happy with this decision. I, I now have accumulated in the last year plus 14 batteries, two of which are cheap knockoffs. I think Vannon is the name. They were actually a mistake to buy. Uh, although I'm using them, they advertise six amp hours, but they are by no means anywhere close to it. They might be maybe two. I haven't actually tested to see how much power they output. And, and There's some other reviews out there on YouTube on those batteries that I couldn't do any better. So I still use those batteries, but since their capacity is nowhere near what they stated, I use them for just low-drain applications, extremely low-drain applications. So we're talking flashlights, a Bluetooth radio, or a Bluetooth speaker, a fan, stuff like that. Now more on this another time, but the price per watt hour ends up being a lot more expensive by going with a cheap knockoff. So this decision has made for future projects to be done with much greater efficiency, a lot less irritation, and has made my project life indeed much less painful, and so I'm super happy with my decision for going the DeWalt route. I am currently working on a video for how I use Fusion 360 to create a hidden slide-out pantry. I use the DeWalt tools as they make a cameo appearance in that. Having those tools made it a lot easier to build the slide-out pantry. Could I have gone with a cheaper tool? Yes, I absolutely could have. But there's something about wrapping my meat hooks around a quality tool that you just can't beat. A few months ago, or maybe it's about half a year ago now, I... Yeah, it was half a year ago. I built a server, a workstation machine. It's my... Uh, I, I call the system Prime because it's my main system. And that does like all my heavy lifting in here. So like rendering or file serving it has my media server on there. Things like that. Well, after I built it, I decided that, you know, I didn't want to leave it without some sort of a backup battery because, you know, it does have seven drives of spinning rust in there. And I, I don't know how tolerant ButterFS is to power outages or any file system for that matter. So it was time to resurrect an old UPS battery, you know, backup system. In this case, it was an APC Smart UPS 1500. Funny names and numbers. Not real memorable. Pretty easy to take apart. Uh, pretty much all I needed was a screwdriver to service it. Uh, the, the front panel kind of pops up and off, and then I just use my, uh, well, actually use my, my DeWalt drill to take apart the two front screws, pull the thing out. And the hardest part was actually separating the two batteries so I could get the specs off of it. I did a little video on the disassembly of it, and for whatever reason, either I didn't shoot it, I don't remember, or I lost the video of me putting it back together but i did it i did a uh, little youtube thingy on it anyway just just to music with some titles because i didn't like hearing my voice i cleaned the corrosion of the parts using vinegar the, uh, the the stuff that i had to reuse 
not a big deal. The batteries I bought from BatteryTrucks.com, it was about half the cost going there than any place else, even the local battery store uh, not far from where I live. And now the UPS is reporting that it's running between 20 and 60% of its load capacity. At least that's what I'm interpreting by the LEDs hovering between one and three bars on the five bar LED gauge. Now I have had a few power losses since then. I think within the next day or so, we did have a power outage for about an hour or so. So the, the thing screamed when I lost power and it kept running uh, the, the server, my my firewall edge device, my IP firebox, uh, my access point. It's anything that was uh, battery backed up, I could still you know, do anything locally. You know, I could even stream movies off my MB server and everything else because the whole network was still powered, except for one switch that I have in my living room that was not powered, that lost power, along with that computer, because I need another UPS, it seems. Anyway, I guess the point of that was UPS systems, a lot of times they're thrown out, they're discarded because the batteries are dead, and you know, it's easier for companies or organizations just to throw out the old and buy new. And, you know, with uh, about 70 bucks or so, I uh, was able to take a $300 device and get it running again, or $300 new-ish. Maybe more than that now. At least it was back in the day. And because I'm cheap, I like to save money where I can, and, you know, it's fun taking things apart and fixing them. I rebuilt the UPS as opposed to buying new. And my wallet thanked me. So I've started doing some YouTube videos again. I don't want to make it my primary thing. It's just not going to be my primary thing, really. I don't, I don't have the time or the patience to do these things very often. I'm also not real crazy about having me in the video. So I shy away from such things that would have my face in it as part of the video. I am not particularly a big fan of my face, especially because I, I have weird facial twitches and I blink funny and my eyebrows kind of dance around oddly. That said, don't expect me to turn the camera only shoot a video of me blathering about some nonsense that I've done. If anything, I'll shoot a video of a desktop or workbench top that has one of those PVC cutting mats, you know, with the grid patterns and, and wave my hands in front of it and pointing to something that's, you know, more interesting than, well, than me. I do intend on doing more video content. I actually have a few things in the works that I do plan to kick out. I'm still recording a video of a robotic vacuum. I'm just getting some other footage of its operation and, and my experience with it. So probably the next couple weeks, I'll, I'll finish that one up. For my Biddle follow-up, now I didn't participate this week or the week before because, you know, life things got in the way. But the distro, we don't call them distro challenges anymore. There's something else now. The distro, the distro was Lubuntu. Uh, and they're discussing, you know, what what is its target audience? Is it for the old systems? Or is it, and what is an old system to typical user? Yeah, you know, I don't know. Uh, I think Lubuntu is the last... Ubuntu-based distribution that dropped 32-bit support, so now it's only 64-bit, so you know, it's not for real old systems. I think if they leave that for like MX Linux and Bunsen Labs and a few others, I'm sure there's more. Puppy Linux. Can't forget Puppy Linux. It does offer full disk encryption right out of the gate. Now, uh, I do want to point out that Yast does too, and there was another member on the Biddle panel. I don't know who it was. I think he's kind of new. He he pointed that out too, which is which I thought was excellent. Another OpenSUSE user. I'm not alone now. Uh, another discussion that went on was that Linux Mint is blocking the Snap Store. And uh, a quote from the website is, uh, in Linux Mint 20, apt will forbid SnapD from getting installed. Now, for me, that's pretty strong verbiage here, actually forbidding SnapD from getting installed. I, I find that to be like opposite of the philosophy of what makes Linux great. You know, I would personally want SnapD to be more ubiquitous, along with Flatpak and app images, make them just all work. And let the developer, you know, choose which outlet that, that works best for them. You know, SnapD or Snap to me is more of a commercial or proprietary method of distributing software. So for any software houses out there that want to distribute software that is proprietary, 
and that you pay for or whatever, you know, they can use that vehicle. And you have Flatpak, which is more open, that uses, you know, FlatHub or they can, you know, any any repositories. It's a little more a little more like the repository system that, that we've grown to love in Linux. And, you know, they can use, if someone wants to use that vehicle, you know, by all means, use that vehicle. And then there's App Images, which is, man, I don't want to say the Wild West or the, or like, you know, uncontrolled, but in a way it is uncontrolled. But you do have the App Image Launcher, which makes it a real nice, uh, almost seamless integration into your desktop, albeit, you know, for that user account only. So I, I, I like the idea of these three different options to include Snap, and it just, it, it befuddles me that Linux Mint would just block it. I mean, I understand some of the reasons. You know, they want, I think they had some beef over the Chromium Snap as opposed to being in, in repositories. But, you know, if they really had a problem with that, they could just maintain Chromium for themselves and then just not make a big fuss about it. I mean, you know, it's this is Linux. This is, you do what you want that suits you as the user. It's not so much, I don't think it should be so much what an organization dictates for the user. And that's why I don't use Windows or Mac. At the end of the day, Mint should do what they feel is best for their project. Whether I agree with it or not, if their users want them to cut off, snap, or run down any other money trail, then they should do, they should suit their users. If it has a detrimental effect on the distribution, then they will either have to reverse their decision or, you know, have a smaller user base. It's, it's up to them and, you know, let them do what they want. I don't use Mint on a regular basis. This decision definitely would not entice me to use Mint. In fact, it would deter me to recommend it to anybody. But again, their decision, their distribution, they do what they want, and I leave it at that. In my open SUSE corner, perhaps my favorite corner of my little corner of the internet, it's the cleanest corner, the one that I, I, I scrub the baseboards. The OpenSUSE and, and LibreOffice conference will take place online this year. Organizers of the OpenSUSE Libre conference, along with the project board, have made the decision to change the conference to an online conference due to the, you know, the uncertainty of things. The call for papers will remain open and people can continue to submit their talks until July 21st of 2020. The submission for the call for papers will continue to take place on the Open Source Event Manager OSEM instance at events.opensusa.org. The collection of submissions will be organized in the OSEM tool, but the online event will take place on a different website, like the one recently used for the OpenSUSE enable web-based service, which is entirely HTML5-based, no plugins required, so you, know, you can pretty much use any, any browser you want. So the following tracks can be selected when submitting a talk related to OpenSUSE, either uh, OpenSUSE, open source, cloud and containers, embedded. And the following tracks can be selected when submitting talks related to LibreOffice, Development, APIs, extensions, future technology, quality assurance, localization, documentation, and native language projects, appealing LibreOffice, ease of use, design, and accessibility, open document format, document liberation and interoperability, advocating, promoting, marketing LibreOffice. Talks can range from easy to difficult, and there are 15-minute, 30-minute, and 45-minute slots available. The OpenSUSE plus LibreOffice conference organizers would like to hear immediately from community members who would be interested in organizing mini online summits to go along with the conference in their local language. The idea would be that the mini online summits could reach greater audiences for communities that are willing to help with organizing it. While the OpenSUSE LibreOffice conference will be done in English, the mini online summits can be done in any local language. For those interested, you can, there'll be, there's an email uh, with, and in the subject put OpenSUSE plus LibreOffice Conference Mini Summit, and I have that information in the show notes that if you, you know, want to click over and see what that's all about. 
So for Tumbleweed, now I, I run Tumbleweed on all but one system in my house. For the last two months, every snapshot has been scoring a stable score of 91 and higher, with two exceptions, which is on 2020-06-04 and 2020-06-02. And 02 was due to an issue with, with Telegram desktop client. There's some libraries that weren't uh, either compiled or, or lining up properly with the uh, UT5 GUI library. And 0604 was due to a quirk in console where the wildcard wasn't working properly for a user. Now, I personally had noticed it, and I'm guessing it was addressed already, or perhaps it didn't affect me. Either way, it seems to be fine now. Now, 2020-0609 has a pending score of a stable 91. Some of the highlights include Mozilla Firefox 77.0.1, Plasma 5.19.0, which I'm running it quite happily. I don't see any issues with it. I like some of the new... Uh, little graphics they use now like bluetooth where it shows if it's connected or disconnected you know a little like an over an over icon type thing it's an icon with a little icon on top uh, that's pretty cool and the orca screen reader got an update to 3.36.3 you know for accessibility and network managers at version 1.24.2 now snapshot snapshot 2020 has a pending score of a stable 96 and the highlights there include Yast 4.3.5 and many of its modules receiving updates. And also updates to the libktorrent, a boatload of updates for libmodplug and libopenmpt for the uh, you know, audio files that like those old mod files and so forth. Uh, so that should be pretty exciting for you. For my computer history retrospective, I was watching the Computer Chronicles on robotics. Who doesn't like robotics? Actually, I feel like I'm not as into it as I should be. It's like I'm kind of down what I'm not up on. However... Even at this time in 1983, robotics and manufacturing in general were starting to do many of the more dangerous tasks that could easily be replaced by some sort of structural process where robots would excel. There was this continued fear of robots taking away jobs as seen in the early 20th century, and some also some speculation as to you know, where robots are going to be seen as something more common. The, the consensus in 1983 is that, that robots will start in the commercial industrial applications and move into the more home or hobbyist, where it will become something more common, but more in structure-type environments. With the speculation that robots would completely eliminate jobs, it doesn't seem to have come into fruition. I know that today we speculate that automation will replace us in every way, and you know, in some capacities, it has. But I do believe it opens up the world for more skilled occupations or more interesting things to do. Robots and computers are certainly very disruptive to society, but they also give us new things to explore as well. You know, because I think about it, you know, would I want to work in an iron smelt or in a coal mine? No, see, for there, I'm very glad automation has taken some of those jobs. Personally, for me, I would rather not work in a warehouse, but some people like that. So I, I can see where people might feel threatened, but I don't see, and I could be wrong, I've been wrong many times, but there will always be manual labor jobs. There has to be. I don't think we're going to see robots and computers, you know, putting up fences anytime soon or designing landscape or, or many things like that. And also, you know, even, even bus drivers, maybe, maybe for like, you know, uh, municipal mass transit, but like tours and such. I mean, uh, people gravitate toward people and, and technology is just a vehicle or means to, to get to where you want to go. So, I don't know, I, I'm not terribly worried that the jobs are all going to go away because of computers and robots. I mean, today I have a robot vacuum. I like it, but I still do sweep and I still do mop, even though I have a robot vacuum. Robots have spawned entertainment in, you know, in Robot Wars, although I'm not a big fan of you know, seeing technology beat the crap out of each other. For a reason, it makes me sad. kind of takes me back to Short Circuit, you know, the movie. I didn't like that. And uh, there's a, little, a funny little thing about in this random access part of, uh, of Computer Chronicles. And they're talking about in 1984 was the year of the mouse and a controversial statement 
that the optical mouse replaced the mechanical mouse. And that prediction did come true, but that was 17 years later. So here are my final thoughts. You know, with everything that's going on in the world, and some people online are you know, have become very hostile, and that makes me sad. We truly live in what I believe to be the, the best time ever. But I think we've forgotten some things. You know, we all have immutable characteristics. Things about us we can't control and that you will never be able to control. But that doesn't make you less of a person. Everybody has value. Everybody has something that they can contribute. We just have to take the time to do it. As always, thank you for listening. Yet another blathering of my nerdy nonsense. Feedback is always welcome. Send me an email. Uh, like me to be more consistent, or maybe I'm better off just stopping entirely. Either will do to balderdash at cubicalnate.com. I hope you are willing to tune in again in what I'm planning is about a week from now or so, but you know, you know how plans go. See yous. <laughs>